You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. And our first lesson comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, which is found on page 998 in your Bible, way in the back. And as we love to say each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own, please do bring one home with you after the service. We would love to make a gift of that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our reading today comes from Mark chapter 1, verse 7 to verse 11. You can find that on page 836 in your pew Bible. This is the gospel of our Lord according to St. Mark. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't met, my name is Dan. I'm very, very grateful, honored to serve here as a pastor. By way of orientation, we have begun the season of Epiphany, having anticipated the coming of the Messiah in Advent and having celebrated his arrival in Christmas, we now give our attention to the illumination of the Messiah's identity, the identity of Jesus. And as we behold the identity of Jesus, we come to understand our own identity in a new way. 
And so it's fitting that today we are beginning a new sermon series that we're calling Identity, Practicing the New Self. And along the way, here are the different sermon title headings that we're going to take a look at. You are not what you do. You are not your body image. You are not your sexual appetite. You are not how much money you have. You are not what people say about you. You are not your own. And so in the ensuing weeks, we will be examining these, you might call them false places, that most of us tend to look for to our sense of identity. And we're going to explore how and why the gospel of Jesus offers us a more robust and stable and secure means of knowing exactly who we are. And so as we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You are not what you do. We're talking about the relationship between identity and work, between who we are and then the stuff that we end up doing. Now, I want to give you the the outline right up front, okay? Part one, you might call... Baptism says identity before work. Baptism says identity before work. Part two, society says work before identity. Part three, Jesus says, I want to transform your identity. And in turn, that will transform your work. Now, I realize that the connection between identity and baptism may not seem obvious to all of us, but as we work through it, I think uh, my hope I expect that you'll see it uh, pretty clearly here in a moment. Our gospel lesson uh, is actually a, a version of a story that is told in three out of four of the gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three gospel accounts, all describe the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And Jesus uh, is the cousin of John the Baptist. Maybe not everybody knows that. John the Baptist is a fascinating human being, and he confounded the establishment of his day, and he kind of still remains something of an enigma to people. If you ask, Sana, if you ask sort of a random person, maybe someone who's grown up in church or been a Christian for a while, tell me about John the Baptist, you might be able to list one or two things, and then your description would just stop because you kind of go, I don't know, seems like a really intense guy. Um, John was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And this is interesting in its original historical context because in the first century, baptism already had symbolic meaning for the Jewish people. It served two purposes. Baptism was for a Gentile who was converting to become Jewish. Or it was for a bride who was purifying herself ritualistically to get ready for her wedding day uh, for her groom. So baptism was already loaded with symbolic meaning, and it signified a transformation, either transformation from, Jew, from Gentile to Jew, from an enemy of God to becoming a part of God's people, or transition from a single life to a married life, washing of the outer persons so that the inner person is symbolically clean as well. And what's interesting about that is Jesus didn't need either one of those, right? He's single, not planning on getting married, and he's already Jewish. So why is Jesus getting baptized? And everybody else thought that was pretty confusing as well. John actually asked Jesus this question directly in the Gospel of Matthew version of this story. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John tries to prevent him. And the text there says, John kind of leans in and says, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? 
And Jesus replies, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, none of us talk that way. So if we can kind of translate that into 21st century English, we might say, John leans in and says, hey, cuz, you got this backwards, right? Come on, you know, I'm, you know you're supposed to be the one that baptizes me. And Jesus leans back and whispers, no, cousin, like, no worries. It's important that we do it this way right now. And so John goes ahead and baptizes Jesus. And it's not clear exactly what the practice would have looked like. It is likely that Jesus would have walked into the flow of the Jordan River and stood there in the water, maybe up to his waist, maybe up to his neck. We're not sure. Did John dunk him under the water or did John pour water on top of his head? Again, we're not sure. We have paintings and frescoes and mosaics from the second and third centuries depicting this scene from the early church. And different paintings and works of art show it happening in different ways. And so if you're one of those people that has always wondered, why do some churches dunk people when they baptize? And why do some churches pour water over their head? The church has been kind of perplexed about which practice since day one, okay? But here's what we know for sure. A lot of water was involved, okay? So John applies water to Jesus, and then there is a theophany. A theophany is a complicated word to describe a moment when God is revealed visibly to human beings. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form in the shape of a dove. The audible voice of God the Father speaks and declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, then we behold in that moment the answer to our perplexing question, why did Jesus need to get baptized? He needed the Holy Spirit to be with him. And he needed the voice of his father to confer his identity and his dignity and his value upon him. This is one of those moments where if you didn't grow up in church, you actually have the advantage over the people who did. Here's what I mean. If you didn't grow up in church, it's kind of obvious to you that any child would need their parent to help them know who they are and to help them know that they're loved and that they're valued and that the parent enjoys the kid. But if you grew up in church, you're not used to thinking about Jesus that way. You're used to thinking about Jesus as God, and God doesn't need anything, right? So why would Jesus need anything at all? He already knows who he is. So why does he need to get baptized? Jesus needed to experience something that he already knew in his mind, but he needed to experience it. He needed to practice something with his body that he already believed intellectually. He needed to see with his eyes. He needed to hear with his ears. And we are not above that. We need that too. The Father's voice is the voice that all of us long to hear. These words, you're the one I love. I'm pleased with you. I enjoy you. I like you. You know, churches talk a lot about God loving us. I'm not sure we talk enough about God liking us. Doesn't that seem like a weird thing to say? God likes you. Kurt Thompson, the author of the book called The Soul of Shame, writes, we are all born into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching our entire lives. Jesus already knew who he was, but he still needed to receive his identity from the Father. And if that's what he needed, then how much more for us, right? So question, at this point in the story, has Jesus done any work? Answer, no. 
His ministry had not yet begun, no miracles, no healings, no mind-blowing Sermon on the Mount, epic preaching, no feeding of the 5,000. This is the very first record we have of Jesus doing something as an adult. And so before he began his work, he needed to be secure in who he was. And whether you're in middle school or high school, college or graduate school, the same is true for you. Before you begin the work, you need to be secure in who you are. Whether you're a business owner or an entrepreneur or a delivery driver or a coffee barista or an elementary school teacher or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, the same is true for you. Before you begin the work, you need to be secure in who you are. Baptism says identity first, then comes the work. You might think of baptism as the sacrament of identity. And a Christian is a baptized person who simply lives this way. A Christian is someone who is living out their baptism, practicing their baptism day in and day out. These words from the Father to Jesus become, remarkably, God's words to you. You're my beloved child. I'm pleased with you. I like you. You're my kid. And so a Christian is somebody who has the strong sense of identity that is rooted in God's love and in God's delight. And in God's love and in God's delight, the person has this remarkable sense of dignity and freedom. And so a Christian is somebody who can walk out the door and go out into the world with a backbone of iron and yet light as a feather, strong and yet free because they're defined by God's love for them. That defines who and what they are. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, like, that sounds like unrealistically lovely. Let's just close in prayer and end the sermon there, right? You know, the problem is for all of us, at least for me, and I suspect for you as well, is that we go out into society and society doesn't care about your baptism at all, right? Does not respect or dignify your baptism. And actually society shapes you in entirely the opposite way. So baptism says identity before work, but the rest of society tells you, no, 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 no. Work before identity. Work before identity. To the best of our knowledge, human beings are the only creatures who struggle with identity. This might seem a little bit simplistic, but just kind of laugh about it with me. An apple tree knows exactly what it is. It's not tempted by false or inauthentic apple tree identities. It does not think about identity at all, right? At this point, you're like, Dan, that's such a stupid metaphor. Apple trees don't think about anything. Yeah, that's the point, actually. They just are. Rocks, ocean waves, dogs, falcons, they simply are what they are. But humans struggle to be human. Humans have a hard time just being. We overthink things. We doubt. We weigh options. We try on identities. We go on identity quests. We take college courses on identity, and we put identities on each other. Then we cast off identities that other people put on us. To simply be, to simply be fully and authentically yourself, is actually remarkably difficult. It's very rare to meet somebody that is simply themselves. Adolescence, those preteen and teenage years are the first time we realize that we have some agency when it comes to identity. Very young children will mostly just believe whatever the adults in their lives tell them that they are. But when we get to the teenage years, we begin to search for an identity independent of what parents and teachers and other authorities put upon us. And so many young people try on identities kind of like trying on clothes, searching for something that seems to fit and that other people approve of, right? And as we transition into adulthood, for many of us, it feels like the identity begins to solidify, like the concrete starts to set. And 
we begin to feel a little bit more secure in who we are. But more often than not, and I'm painting with a broad brush here, more often than not, the identity that begins to feel so secure in adulthood is built upon a career, a job, a skill set, an occupation. I know where I fit in the world based on what I do. I'm a chef. I'm a carpenter. I'm a graphic designer. I'm a consultant. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm a homemaker. I'm a lawyer. I'm a teacher. We find something to do. We find a way to be useful, a way to earn money, and a way to garner respect and praise and affirmation from others. And so the thing we do in our minds becomes the thing that we are. My friend Dave Zoll puts it this way. When we talk about success or failure in life, it's just assumed that we're talking about work, which means that a job is never just a job. It is an identity. It's where we locate our enoughness. And our media and our entertainment kind of reflect this reality back to us. Just think about this. Think about the popular TV shows today uh, and maybe just in the past uh, 10 to 15 years or so. Grey's Anatomy, The Office, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, Mad Men, Suits, more recently The Bear, all are based on the workplace. The workplace is the setting for all of these shows because the assumption is, well, work is where life happens. That's where people figure out who they are. It's different from the shows in the 70s and 80s and 90s where the home was the setting, right? Family Ties, Facts of Life, Roseanne, Married with Children. Like, I don't know what you watched in the 70s. I wasn't around then. Um, or you might think about it. <laughs> some of you are like, wait a minute. He's, he's younger than I thought. Um, or you might think about a place where work and home actually converge and actually get blended in a Vitamix into the very same thing, right? Think about keeping up with the Kardashians. There is no difference between work life and home life. It's all the same. And increasingly, there is pressure on companies, especially larger corporations, to blur the lines between work life and home life for their employees. Offices tend to provide amenities, top of the art, top state of the art video games, ping pong tables, beer on tap. How do you get anything done? Um, and in our post-COVID world, increasingly, work has moved online for a lot of us, and so employees are encouraged to do their work from home. To quote my friend Dave Zoll once more, he writes, when we live to work rather than the other way around, the distinction between our jobs and ourselves understandably disappears. What he's describing is what a psychologist would call enmeshment. Enmeshment is when two things that ought to be distinct from each other start to merge. The distinctions blur and they become almost the same thing, but it's in an unhealthy way. They're meant to be different, but they become the same. And so, you know, you can, we sort of see this in even just like our language and the way we talk to each other. You meet somebody new, of course, within the first, you know, few minutes, you're going to ask them, what do you do? And they're going to answer, and then they're going to ask you, what do you do? Because if you're going to get to know somebody, you have to sort of know, what do you do, right? That's how I sort of figure out who you are. And of course, those of us that try to avoid that um, still end up falling into the same kind of rhythm because even if you don't ask somebody what they do, within the first few minutes, they'll probably tell you, right? How does the joke go? How can you tell if somebody does, does CrossFit? Don't worry, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Actually, you can just expand that. How can you tell if somebody is finding their identity in what you do? Well, in the first three minutes of meeting them, don't worry, they'll tell you. Now, when I've talked with other people about this, they've kind of pushed back and said, hang on, like, 
That's not a some people thing. That's an everybody thing. That's just the way we talk. All of us do that. To which we might say, just because it's an everybody problem doesn't mean it's not a problem. If everybody's an addict, that doesn't mean there's no such thing as addiction. It just means we all have the problem. I'm an addict too. When I live to work, then I am what I do. In the old movie Chariots of Fire, one of the athletes, Harold Abrams, is reflecting about his upcoming race, the 100-meter dash, for which he's been training his entire life. And he says, now in one hour's time, I will be out there. I will raise my eyes. I will look down that corridor with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? He believes, I mean, it's, it's a bit dramatic. He believes his performance is, is you know, at his work is, is who he is. It's justifying his existence. And so many of us probably wouldn't say it like that. We're not quite drama queens in that way, but we, we kind of adopt the same approach. And increasingly, this is so sad, there's pressure on elderly folks to end their lives prematurely if they are no longer able to be contributing workers to the economy. And the unspoken assumption baked into the cake is that if you cannot do useful work, then maybe you shouldn't be alive. And this way of allowing what you do to define who you are makes work your place where you perform your identity. Good work means good identity. Bad work means a bad identity. David Brenner has written this wonderful little 100-page book called The Gift of Being Yourself. And I kind of don't like the title that much, but the book itself is actually quite lovely. And in it, he describes this problem. He writes, The problem is that this strategy works for me. The more I accomplish, the more people like me. Consequently, I become better and better at being the little performer that I think people want. And this gives me some distance from the feeling of being a nobody. Even more important, it gives me a way of not just being a somebody, but, but, but being somebody special. Tragically, however, it keeps me from discovering just how likable I might be without any effort to look good. And it sets me on a treadmill of performance. Do you hear his pain in that? <laughs> People might like me even if I didn't do anything useful or impressive, but I'll never know because I've spent my whole life trying to impress people. If you are what you do, then your identity is something that you perform. If you perform well, then you are the good things that you've done. You are, there's no difference between you and your resume. You are your resume and you will swell with pride and the praise and adulation of others will wash over you like warm Caribbean water and you will know that you're good because you're good at stuff. But secretly, deep inside you in a place that nobody else sees, you will have a growing sense of panic because you will know that it's all an act. And you will know that people think you're better than you are actually are. And the exhaustion of keeping that facade going will wear you out. And the more they praise you, the more you will at one level enjoy it and at a deeper level you will despair because they don't know it's all pretend. And you will have to keep pretending to be good the rest of your life. On the other hand, if you perform poorly, if you fail, if you're just mediocre, right? Some of us are just not that good at stuff. If you're just, if you're just someone who struggles, well, then you are your failures. You're defined by your weaknesses. You are the bad things that you've done. And you will cower in shame 
and self-loathing will creep in and you will begin to hate yourself. And secretly deep inside in a place that you're embarrassed to talk about at church, you will wonder if maybe you should never have been born, if it would be better for you to be gone because you cannot perform well enough to have a good identity in your own eyes or in the eyes of other people. You are what you do and you've done some terrible things. And now those terrible things define you, which makes you terrible. This is why it has become normal for people to have an identity crisis. Identity crises are normal. They're everybody things. Now, finding your identity is in what you do is so tempting because what you do is not something that exists in your mind. It's something you do with your body. It's actually something you do with all of you. It involves your mind, body, spirit, hope, fear, skills, resources, Finding your identity in what you do is so powerful because you are practicing this false identity every day. Every time you get out of bed and go to work, you, are pract- you, are, you might be practicing that false identity. And every time you practice it, it gets a little stronger and the roots go a little deeper. And the problem, if I can just speak to the Christians for a moment, I'm not, not everybody's a Christian, I know. But for those of you who are baptized Christians, the problem for us is that if you counter practicing this false identity in your work with only the cognitive belief that your identity is in Christ, then what you do will win every time. The idea in your mind cannot compete with the practices of your body. And so if the crisis has not yet hit, then you're setting yourself up for a future crisis. For some of you, actually, the crisis has already hit. Bless you. And congratulations. That's actually a wonderful gift. May it hit early while there's still time. For some of us, the crisis has been kicked down the road. It hasn't come yet, but it will. Not trying to sound ominous or weird, but it will. It might come with retirement, where you take a step back and everybody claps and cheers, and then the next morning you wake up and you go, oh, no, I don't know who I am anymore. It might come for stay-at-home parents when the kids leave the house. That, that, that mark that feels like the finish line, I can't wait to get there. I'll have successfully parented my kids to be fully functioning adults. Then they leave and then you go, oh no, I don't know who I am anymore. It may come with an illness or a physical disability. I just can't perform. Or it might come with getting fired where the world judges you and decides your work is no good which means you're no good. At some point, you'll be thrown off the work performance treadmill, and then who will you be? The solution, friends, before that crisis hits, or in the midst of crisis, or maybe after crisis, if that's where you are, would be to take your identity crisis to God. You cannot know yourself without knowing God, and conversely, you actually cannot know God without knowing yourself. These two things are bound up with each other. And actually, the great teachers and theologians, the great thinkers of the church have always known this. We'll just name three of them. Thomas Akempis said, a humble self-knowledge is a sure way to God than a search after deep learning. In other words, if you truly know yourself, you're much closer to knowing God than if you read all the books. St. Augustine put it this way, grant, Lord, that I may know myself as I know thee. In other words, the more I know myself, the more I know God, the more I know God, the more I know myself. And John Calvin kind of ties the whole thing up together and said, nearly the whole sacred doctrine consists of two things, knowledge of God, knowledge of the self. 
And so I just need to let all of you know, especially those of you who are not yet Christians, the hypothesis upon which this whole sermon and indeed all of Christian theology of identity is based upon is that God knows you better than you know you. And that he cares deeply about your identity and your well-being. And he desires to give you an identity that is stable and rooted and secure, that actually gives you ballast in the boat. And no matter what waves or storms rock you, you're not going to flip over because your identity is safe and secure. This is what God longs to give you. And he actually knows what you need better than you know yourself. That's the hypothesis upon which all of this is predicated. And we see it in our first lesson that Lane read a few moments ago from Titus chapter 3. The first two verses go like this. This is the good news. It says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In other words, God knows Your identity needs rescuing. God's posture towards you is not one of condemning you for finding your identity in your work or your performance. If you thought that's where the sermon was going, great news, totally wrong. God is not out to slam you for finding your identity in your work. Nor is he condemning you for performing so poorly and for failing and for being a total screw-up. He is merciful He sees you in your identity crisis. He takes pity on you in the best sense of the word. And he saves you, rescues you, delivers you, relieves you. And here's how he does it. He pulls you off of the treadmill of performance. And there you are, breathless, tired from all of the running. Or if you've already gotten off the treadmill and you're hiding in the corner in shame, he pulls you out of the corner, (laughs) brings you out into the light. And he takes your resume, your report card, your list of achievements, and your list of debilitating failures. And he tosses them aside. He grabs your face and he looks into your eyes and he says, you are not what you do. You are not what you do. You are mine. You are mine. You are my kid. You are not what you do. You are what I've done for you. And he does this for you in baptism. And that's actually the logic of the biblical text. Verses five and six. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is baptism language, water language. Baptism is God claiming you for his very own. Your good performance doesn't earn it. Your bad performance doesn't discourage it. All the stuff you've done, (laughs) this is like, this is a good news, bad news moment. All the stuff you've done doesn't factor into the equation. The new you that God is building is kind of like an architect designing a house. And the things that you've done are like a handful of Legos. So bear with me. This is a little silly. An architect is designing a house. You come to the architect maybe with pride, These are my Legos. You think these will help in building this new house? (laughs) Or maybe you come to the architect with shame. These are my Legos. It's all I got. It's pretty pathetic, I know, but do you think this is of any use to you? Either way, the architect is going to set them aside and say, look, the materials I'm using are actually marble and stone and wood to build this house. Your Legos are just not a necessary ingredient. They're just not part of the equation. Baptism builds you from the ground up. It builds an identity in you from the ground up. And it does not make use 
of the materials of your past. It doesn't make use of all the stuff you do. It makes use of the stuff that Jesus does and did. It's a fresh start. It's a new you. And the news gets even better. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The new you that God is building is a son or a daughter, an heir, a child. What does an heir have to do to get the inheritance? Just be in the family. Employees work for wages. Heirs receive by birthright. Now here's the pivot. Here's the turn. Are you ready? Verse 8 brings us right back to the beginning. Verse 8 reads, The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Verse 5, He saved us, not by works done by us. Verse 8, Devote yourselves to good works. In the middle, your baptism and your adoption as a child of God and heir of the kingdom. In other words, Part one, your work does not create your identity. Part two, but through the baptism into the gospel of Jesus, your identity, part three, may lead to good works. The good works you do, all the work of your life, your vocation, all of the stuff you do when you get out of bed in the morning, it all flows from the identity you have in Jesus in your baptism. Now, Some of you have done terrible things, and you may feel or fear that those terrible things define you. And the good news for you is that in your baptism, they do not define you. They're not who you are. Some of you have done great things. This might actually be harder for you than the people who have done terrible things. (laughs) You've done great things. You are very impressive. And in your baptism, those things do not define you. (laughs) Baptism is the great equalizer. Your previous good deeds are worthless here. Your previous evil deeds are inconsequential here. Your work is not your identity, but your identity enables you to do good work. Now, we need to conclude by thinking about the connection between a thing that happens, an event, then the corresponding practices that go with it. Let's use the metaphor of marriage. A wedding is an event, one-time thing. It happens in space and time. There's a before and an after. You came into the wedding not married. You left married. Something happened. But then there's the marriage and all of the practices of marriage that go with it. You're meant to live that wedding out hour by hour, day by day. You take vows, but then you have to live those vows, right? Baptism is the same way. Baptism is an event. It just happened for these four dear ones. They walked into this room not baptized. They will leave this room baptized children of God. But the new identity that they have received is a practice, something that must be lived out hour by hour, day by day. And so let's conclude by just naming a few ways to practice this new identity. Because, as we said earlier, the problem for many Christians is that they practice the false identity of you are what you do, and then they simply believe something different that their identity is in Christ. So the solution for all of us is to get baptized and then to practice your baptism. Practice the new identity. And that will counteract that tendency to find your identity in what you do. First practice, if you're not baptized, get baptized. Step one, it's where we all begin. 
I beg you, come and receive baptism. Jesus needed to see and hear and touch and feel that he was beloved by the Father and that the Spirit was with him, and you need it too. Knowing in your head is not enough. Let me say it again. Knowing in your mind, in your head, is not enough. The practice matters. Baptism is the sacrament that establishes identity. And then the second sacrament of the church, the Eucharist, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, is the sacrament that reinforces or strengthens identity. If you think about the two most important places where a child in any family receives identity from their parents, they are, one, the birthing room, where they enter the family, and then two, the kitchen table, where they gather with the family to receive nourishment, provision, conversation, (laughs) encouragement, and reinforcing from their parents. This is the table. This is where we are fed by our parent. The tables where children go to be fed by their heavenly father. That's practice number two. Practice one, baptism. Practice two, the Eucharist, Holy Communion. Practice three, and this might be the most specific one, targeted at that false identity problem of you are what you do. Sabbath rest. In the gospel, you are not what you do. Sabbath rest is a full day off from work. Whatever your work is, whatever work is most likely to be that place of finding identity for you, that's the work that you must specifically, with your body, lay aside for one full day every week. And remember that your identity comes from your baptism into God's family in Jesus. So many people tend to view Sabbath as an optional practice that is icing on the cake if you're into that sort of thing, if you can afford it. It is absolutely essential. We want to say to you it is absolutely essential, especially if you're not into that sort of thing or if you feel like you cannot afford it. It's the beginning of a new year. Most of us are in that kind of like this week and last week and the next week are these these weeks of the year where we think about who do I want to be this year? And how am I going to change? And we tend, without even trying, to think, how am I going to make myself into a different kind of person this year with habits and practices and all kinds of stuff, right? You know one of the most important things you could do this year for your identity, for who you are, is to take a day off every week and stop. Stop working. You cannot create an identity with your hard work, but you can receive it. And you will be able to receive it when you stop. The last practice is a very simple prayer. And this is a rather specific one, but it's actually come out of a lot of my experiences with a number of you, especially a number of you men. At least a dozen of of you men over the past seven years have come and have sat in my office and we've had some version of the same conversation that has gone something like this. I'm a Christian and I believe intellectually that God loves me, but I do not feel loved. I have no sense, no no feeling, no experience of God's love for me. I know I'm supposed to believe it, but I do not feel it or experience it. What do I do? And we've talked about all kinds of things in relation to that problem, but one of the prescriptions that I've given to a number of you men, and it's one that an older brother in Christ gave to me years ago, which is to take out a little scrap piece of paper, tear it out of your notebook, and write a one-sentence prayer. Heavenly Father, I need to know that I am your child and that you love me. Amen. And I've, I've given this to, someone gave this to me and I've given this to a number of you and just encouraged you, as often as you feel that doubt, pray this. Now, it's not 
complicated, and it does not, it's not intellectually satisfying. And of course, that's the point. It just brings you into conversation with your heavenly father, the one who at your baptism has said to you, you are my beloved child. In you, I am, I'm really well pleased. I like you. And it brings you into conversation with God that you might day over day, year over year, receive your identity directly from him. Friends, you're gonna spend up to a third of your life working. Work is very important. Nothing we've said this morning has diminished the importance or the value of work. But work is powerful, accidentally powerful for forming an identity because it's a practice that involves all of you. It's what you need in order to have a more stable identity is not only a counter belief, not only counter theology, but counter practices. So practice, dear friends, your new identity in Jesus, in your baptism. Practice it in receiving the Eucharist. Practice it weekly through Sabbath rest. Practice it through prayer. As you ask God, please, can you tell me one more time, do you love me? You are not what you do. You are what Christ has done for you. And it is a gift to live that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have given us, you have offered to us a new identity that is stable and secure, that cannot be threatened by anything else. Thank you that we are not what we do. What a relief. We just simply want to say thank you this morning. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.